Section 4. Lady Delacour's History, Part 2, of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. Belinda, by Maria Edgeworth. Section 4. I forgot to tell you that I had three children during the first five years of my marriage. The first was a boy. He was born dead, and my lord and all his odious relations laid blame upon me, because I would not be kept prisoner half a year by an old mother of his, a vile Cassandra, who was always prophesying that my child would not be born alive. My second child was a girl, but a poor, diminutive, sickly thing. It was the fashion at this time for fine mothers to suckle their own children. So much the worse for the poor brats. Fine nurses never made fine children. There was a prodigious rout made about the matter. A vast deal of sentiment and sympathy and compliments and inquiries. But after the novelty was over, I became heartily sick of the business, and at the end of about three months my poor child was sick, too. I don't much like to think of it. It died. If I had put it out to nurse, I should have been thought by my friends as an unnatural mother. But I should have saved its life. I should have bewailed the loss of the infant more. Lord Delacour's relations and my own had not made such lamentations upon the occasion that I was stunned. I couldn't or wouldn't shed a tear. And I left it to the old dowager to perform in public as she wished the part of the chief mourner, and to comfort herself in private by lifting up her hands and eyes and railing at me as the most insensible of mothers. All this time I suffered more than she did. But that is what she shall never have the satisfaction of knowing. I determined that if I ever had another child, I would not have the barbarity to nurse it myself. Accordingly, when my third child, a girl, was born, I sent it off immediately to the country, to a stout, healthy, broad-faced nurse under whose care it could grow and be flourished, so that at three years old, when it was brought back to me, I could scarcely believe the chubby little thing was my own child. The same reasons which convinced me I ought not to nurse my own child determined me a prefort raison not to undertake its education. Lord Delacour could not bear the child, because it was not a boy. The girl was put under the care of a governess, who plagued my heart out with her airs and tracasseries for three or four years, at the end of which time, as she turned out to be Lord Delacour's mistress in form, I was obliged in form to beg she would leave my house, and I put her pupil into better hands, I hope, at a celebrated academy for young ladies. There she will, at any rate, be better instructed than she could be at home. I beg your pardon, my dear, for this digression on nursing and schooling. 
but I only wanted to explain to you why it was that, when I was weary of the business, I still went on in a course of dissipation. You see, I had nothing at home, either in the shape of husband or children, to engage my affections. I believe it was this aching void in my heart which made me, after looking abroad some time for a bosom friend, take such a prodigious fancy to Mrs. Frick. She was just then coming into fashion. She struck me the first time I met her, as being downright ugly. There was a wild oddity in her countenance which made one stare at her, and she was delighted to be stared at, especially by me. So we were mutually agreeable to each other, I as starer, and she as starey. Harriet Freck had, without comparison, more assurance than any man or woman I ever saw. She was downright brass, but of the finest kind, Corinthian brass. She was one of the first who brought what I call harem-scarum manners into fashion. I told you that she had insurance. Impudence, I should have called it, for no other word is strong enough. Such things as I have heard Harriet Freck say. You will not believe it, but her conversation at first absolutely made me, like an old-fashioned fool, wish I had a fan to play with. But to my astonishment, all this took, surprisingly, with a set of fashionable young men. I found it necessary to reform my manners. If I had not taken heart of grace, and publicly abjured the heresies of false delicacy, I should have been excommunicated. Lady Delacour's sprightly elegance, allow me to speak of myself in the style in which the newspaper writers talk of me, Lady Delacour's sprightly elegance was pale, not to say faded, pink, compared with the scarlet of Mrs. Freck's dashing audacity. As my rival, she would on certain ground have beat me hollow. It was therefore good policy to make her my friend. We joined forces, and nothing could stand against us. But I have no right to give myself credit for good policy in forming this intimacy. I really followed the dictates of my heart, or my imagination. There was a frankness in Harriet's manner, which I mistook for artlessness of character. She spoke with such unbounded freedom on certain subjects, that I gave her credit for unbounded sincerity on all subjects. She had the talent of making the world believe that virtue to be invulnerable by nature, which disdained the common outworks of art for its defense. I, amongst others, took it for granted that the woman who could make it her sport to touch the brink of all we hate must have a stronger head than other people. I have since been convinced, however, of my mistake. 
I am persuaded that few can touch the brink without tumbling headlong down the precipice. Don't apply this, my dear, literally, to the person of whom we are speaking. I am not base enough to betray her secrets. However, I may have been provoked by her treachery. Of her character and history you shall hear nothing but what is necessary for my own justification. The league of amity between us was scarcely ratified before my Lord Delacour came, with his wise remonstrating face, to beg me to consider what was due to my honour and his. Like the cosmogony man and the vicar of Wakefield, he came out over and over with this cant phrase, which had once stood him instead. Do you think, my lord, said I, that because I gave up poor Lawless to oblige you, I shall give up all common sense to suit myself to your taste? Harriet Freck is visited by everybody but old dowagers and old maids. I am neither an old dowager nor an old maid. The consequence is obvious, my lord. Pertness in dialogue, my dear, often succeeds better with my lord than wit. I therefore saved the sterling gold, and bestowed upon him nothing but counters. I tell you this to save the credit of my taste and judgment. But to return to my friendship for Harriet Freck. I, of course, repeated to her every word which had passed between my husband and me. She out-heroded Herod upon the occasion, and laughed so much at what she called my folly in pleading guilty in the lawless cause, that I was downright ashamed of myself, and purely to prove my innocence, I determined, upon the first convenient opportunity, to renew my intimacy with the colonel. The opportunity, which I so ardently desired of redeeming my independence, was not long wanting. Lawless, as my stars, which you know are always more in fault than ourselves, would have it, returned just at this time from the continent, where he had been with his regiment. He returned with a wound across his forehead and a black fillet, which made him look something more like a hero and ten times more like a coxcomb than ever. He was in fashion at all the events, and amongst other ladies. Mrs. Luttridge, odious Mrs. Luttridge, smiled upon him. The colonel, however, had taste enough to know the difference between smile and smile. He laid himself and his laurels at my feet, and I carried him and them about in triumph. Wherever I went, especially to Mrs. Lutterich's envy and scandal, joined hands to attack me, and I heard wondering and whispering wherever I went. I had no object in view but to provoke my husband, Therefore, conscious of the purity of my intentions, it was my delight to brave the opinion of the wondering world. 
I gave myself no concern about the effect my coquetry might have upon the object of this flirtation. Poor Lawless! Heart, I took it for granted, he had none. How should a coxcomb come by a heart? Vanity, I knew he had in abundance. But this gave me no alarm, as I thought that if it should ever make him forget himself, I mean, forget what was due to me, I could, by one flash of my wit, strike him to the earth, or blast him for ever. One night we had been together at Mrs. Luttridge's. She, amongst other things, kept a pharaoh bank, and, I am convinced, cheated be that as it may. I lost an immensity of money, and it was my pride to lose with as much gaiety as anybody else could win. So I was, or it appeared to be, in uncommonly high spirits, and Lawless had his share of my good humour. We left Mrs. Luttridge's together early, about half-past one. As the colonel was going to hand me to my carriage, a smart-looking young man, as I thought, came up close to the coach door and stared me full in the face. I was not a woman to be disconcerted at such things as this, but I really was startled when the young fellow jumped into the carriage after me. I thought he was mad. I had only courage enough to scream. Lawless seized hold of the intruder to drag him out, and he dragged the youth, exclaiming in a high tone, "'What is the meaning of all this, sir? Who the devil are you? My name's Lawless. Who the devil are you?' The answer to this was a convulsion of laughter. By the laugh, I knew it to be Harriet Freck. "'Who am I?' "'Only a frack!' cried she. "'Shake hands!' I gave her my hand into the carriage she sprang, and desired the colonel to follow her. Lawless laughed. We all laughed, and drove away. "'Where do you think I've been?' said Harriet, in the gallery of the House of Commons, almost squeezed to death these few hours. But I swore I'd hear Sheridan's speech to-night, and I did.' betted fifty guineas I would with Mrs. Luttridge, and have won. Fun and freck for ever, huzzah! Harriet was mad with spirits, and so noisy and unmanageable, that, as I told her, I was sure she was drunk. Lawless, in his silly way, laughed incessantly, and I was so taken up with her oddities, that for some time I did not perceive we were going the Lord knows where, till at last, when the larum of Harriet's voice ceased for an instant, I was struck with the strange sound of the carriage. "'Where are we? Not upon the stones, I'm sure,' said I, and putting my head out of the window, I saw we were beyond the turnpike. The coachman's drunk as well as you, Harriet, said I. 
and I was going to pull the string to stop him. But Harriet had hold of it. The man is going very right, she said. I've told him where to go. Now don't fancy that Lawless and I are going to run away with you. All this is unnecessary nowadays, thank God. To this I agreed and laughed for fear of being ridiculous. Guess where you are going, said Harriet. I guessed and guessed, but could not guess right, and my merry companions were infinitely diverted with my perplexity and impatience, more especially, as I believe, in spirit of all my efforts. I grew rather graver than usual. We went on to the end of Sloane Street, and quite out of town. At last we stopped. It was dark. The footman's flame was out. I could only just see by the lamps that were at the door of a lone, odd-looking house. The house door opened, and an old woman appeared with a lantern in her hand. "'Where is this farce, or freak, or whatever you call it, to end?' said I, as Harriet pulled me into the dark passage along with her. "'Alas, my dear Belinda,' said Lady Delacour, pausing, "'I little foresaw where or how it was to end, but I am not come yet to the tragical part of my story.' and as long as I can laugh, I will, as the old woman and her miserable light went on before us, I could almost have thought of Sir Bertrand, or of some German horrifications, but I heard Lawless, who never could help laughing at the wrong time, bursting behind me with a sense of his own superiority. "'Now you will learn your destiny, Lady Delacour,' said Harriet, in a solemn tone. "'Yes, from the celebrated Mrs. W., the modern dealer in art magic,' I said, laughing. "'For now I guess whereabouts I am.' Colonel Lawless's laugh broke the spell. "'Harriet Freck,' Never whilst you live expect to succeed in the sublime. Harriet swore at the colonel for the veriest spoil-sport she had ever seen, and she whispered to me, The reason he laughs is because he is afraid of our suspecting the truth of him, that he believes tout est bon in conjuration and the devil and all that. The old woman, whose cue I found was to be dumb, opened a door at the top of a narrow staircase, and pointing to a tall figure, completely enveloped in fur, left us to our fate. I will not trouble you with a pompous description of all the mummery of the scene, my dear, as I despair of being able to frighten you out of your wits. I should have been downright angry with Harriet Freck for bringing me to such a place, but that I knew women of the first fashion had been with Mrs. W. before us, some in sober sadness, some by way of frolic, so as there was no fear of being ridiculous, 
there was no shame, you know, and my conscience was quite at ease. Harriet had no conscience. She was always at ease, and never more so than in male attire, which she had been told became her particularly. She supported the character of a young rake with such spirit and truth that I am sure no common conjurer could have discovered anything feminine about her. She rattled on with a set of nonsensical questions, and among other things she asked, How soon will Lady Delacour marry again, after her lord's death? She will never marry after her lord's death, answered the oracle. Then she will marry during his lifetime, said Harriet. True, answered the oracle. Colonel Lawless laughed. I was angry, and the colonel would have been quiet, for he was a gentleman. But there was no such thing as managing Mrs. Frack, who, though she had laid aside the modesty of her own sex, had not acquired the decency of the other. Who is to be Lady Delacour's second husband? cried she. You'll not offend any of the present company by naming the man. Her second husband I cannot name, replied the oracle, but let her beware of a lawless lover. Mrs. Freck and Colonel Lawless, encouraged by her, triumphed over me without mercy, I may say without shame. Well, my dear, I'm in a hurry to have done with all this, though I doted upon folly, yet I was terrified at the thoughts of anything worse. The idea of a divorce, the public brand of a shameful life, shocked me in spite of all my real and my assumed levity. Oh, that I had, at this instant, dared to be myself! But my fear of ridicule was greater than my fear of vice. "'Bless me, my dear Lady Delacour,' whispered Harriet as we left the house. What can make you in such a desperate hurry to get home? You gape and fidget. One would think you had never sat up a night before in your life. I verily believe you are afraid to trust yourself with us. Which of us are you afraid of? Lawless? Or me? Or yourself? There was a tone of contempt in the last words which piqued me to the quick, and however strange it may seem, I was now anxious only to convince Harriet that I was not afraid of myself. False shame made me act as if I had no shame. You would not suspect me of knowing anything of false shame, but depend on it, my dear, many who appear to have as much assurance as I have, are secretly its slaves. I moralize, because I am come to the part of my story, which I should almost be glad to omit. But I promised you that there should be no sins of omission. It was light, but not broad daylight, when we got to Kingsbridge, 
lawless, encouraged, for I cannot deny it, by the levity of my manner as well as of Harriet's, was in higher and more familiar spirits than I ever saw him. Mrs. Freck desired me to set her down at her sister's, who lived in Grosvenor Place. So I did, and I beg you to believe that I was in an agony to get rid of my colonel at the same time. But you know I could not, before Harriet Freak, absolutely say to him, get out. Indeed, to tell things as they were, it was scarcely possible to guess by my manner that I was under anxiety. I acted my part so well, or so ill, as Harriet Freak jumped out of the coach, a cock crowned in the area of her sister's house. There, cried Harriet, do you hear the cock crow, Lady Delacour? Now it's to be hoped your fear of goblins is over, else I would not be so cruel as to leave the pretty dear all alone. All alone, answered I. Your friend the colonel is much obliged to you for making nobody of him. My friend the colonel, whispered Harriet, leaning with her bold masculine arms on the coach door. My friend the colonel is much obliged to me, I'm sure, for remembering what the cunning or the knowing woman told us just now. So when I said I left you alone, I was not guilty of a bull, was I? I had the grace to be heartily ashamed of this speech, and called out in utter confusion, To Berkeley Square! But where shall I set you down, Colonel? Harriet, good morning. Don't forget you are in man's clothes. I did not dare to repeat the question of where shall I set you down, Colonel, at this instant, because Harriet gave me such an arch, sneering look, as much as to say, still afraid of yourself. We drove on. I am persuaded that the confusion which, in spite of all my efforts, broke through my affected levity. Encouraged, lawless, who was naturally a coxcomb and a fool, to believe that I was actually his, else he never could have been so insolent. In short, my dear, before we got through the turnpike, I was downright obliged to say to him, Get out, which I did with a degree of indignation that quite astonished him. He muttered something about ladies knowing their minds, and I own, though I went off with flying colors, I secretly blamed myself as much as I did him. And I blamed Harriet more than I did either. I sent for her the next day, as soon as I could, to consult her. She expressed such astonishment and so much concern at this catastrophe of our night's frolic, and blamed herself with so many oaths, and execrated lawless for a coxcomb, so much to the ease and satisfaction of my conscience, 
that I was confirmed in my good opinion of her, and indeed felt for the most lively affection and esteem, for observe, with me esteem ever followed affection, instead of affection following esteem. Woe be to all who in morals preposterously put the cart before the horse. But to proceed with my history, all fashionable historians stop to make reflections, supposing that no one else can have the sense to make any. My esteemed friend agreed with me that it would be best for all parties concerned to hush up this business, that as Lawless was going out of town in a few days to be elected for a borough, we should get rid of him in the best possible way without more last words, that he had been punished sufficiently on the spot, and that to punish twice for the same offence, once in private and once in public, would be contrary to the laws of English men and English women, and in my case would be contrary to the evident dictates of prudence, because I could not complain without calling upon Lord Delacour to call Lawless out. This I could not do without acknowledging that his lordship had been in the right in warning me about his honour and my own, which old phrase I dreaded to hear for the ninety-ninth time. Besides, Lord Delacour was the last man in the world I should have chosen for my knight, though, unluckily, he was my lord. Besides, all things considered, I thought the whole story might not tell so well in the world for me. Tell it which way I would. We therefore agreed that it would be most expedient to hold our tongues. We took it for granted that Lawless would hold his. As for my people, they knew nothing, I thought, or if they did, I was sure of them. How the thing got abroad! I could not at the time conceive, though now I am well acquainted with the baseness and treachery of the woman I called my friend. The affair was known and talked of everywhere the next day, and the story was told especially at odious Mrs. Luttridge's, with such exaggerations as drove me almost mad. I was enraged, inconceivably enraged, with Lawless, for whom I imagined the reports originated. I was venting my indignation against him in a roomful of company, where I had just made my story good when a gentleman to whom I was a stranger came in breathless, with the news that Colonel Lawless was killed in a duel by Lord Delacour, that they were carrying him home to his mother's, and that the body was just going by the door. The company all crowded to the windows immediately, and I was left standing alone, till I could stand no longer, 
what was said or done after this I do not remember. I only know that when I came to myself, the most dreadful sensation I ever experienced was the certainty that I had the blood of a fellow creature to answer for. I wonder, said Lady Delacour, breaking off at this part of her history and rising suddenly. I wonder what has become of Marriott. Surely it is time for me to have my drops. Miss Portman, have the goodness to ring, for I must have something immediately. Belinda was terrified at the wildness of her manner. Lady Delacour became more composed, or more constraint upon herself, at the sight of Marriott. Marriott brought from the closet in her lady's room the drops, which Lady Delacour swallowed with precipitation. Then she ordered coffee, and afterwards chase café, and at last, turning to Belinda with a forced smile, she said, Now shall the Princess Scheherazade go on with her story? End of section four. Lady Delacour's History, part two. Recording by Sandra Estenson.